Section 29 of Volume 1 E of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume, Volume 1e, Section 29, Chapter 56, Part 2. While the king's army lay at Shrewsbury, and he was employing himself in collecting money, which he received, though in no great quantities, by voluntary contributions, and by the plate of the universities which was sent him the news arrived of an action the first which had happened in these wars and where he was successful on the appearance of commotions in england the princes rupert and maurice sons of the unfortunate palatine had offered their service to the king and the former at that time commanded a body of horse which had been sent to worcester in order to watch the motions of essex who was marching towards that city no sooner had the prince arrived than he saw some cavalry of the enemy approaching the gates without delay he briskly attacked them as they were defiling from a lane and forming themselves colonel sandys who led them and who fought with valour being mortally wounded fell from his horse the whole party was routed and was pursued above a mile the prince hearing of essex's approach retired to the main body this rencounter though in itself of small importance mightily raised the reputation of the royalists and acquired to prince rupert the character of promptitude and courage qualities which he eminently displayed during the whole course of the war the king on mustering his army found it amount to ten thousand men the earl of lindesey who in his youth had sought experience of military service in the low countries was general prince rupert commanded the horse sir jacob astley the foot sir arthur aston the dragoons sir john hayden the artillery lord bernard stuart was at the head of a troop of guards the estates and revenue of this single troop according to lord clarendon's computation were at least equal to those of all the members who at the commencement of the war voted in both houses their servants under the command of sir william killigrew made another troop and always marched with their masters with this army the king left shrewsbury resolving to give battle as soon as possible to the army of the parliament which he heard was continually augmenting by supplies from london in order to bring on an action he directed his march towards the capital which he knew the enemy would not abandon to him essex had now received his instructions the import of them was to present a most humble petition to the king and to rescue him and the royal family from those desperate malignants who had seized their persons two days after the departure of the royalists from shrewsbury he left worcester 
though it be commonly easy in civil wars to get intelligence the armies were within six miles of each other ere either of the generals was acquainted with the approach of his enemy shrewsbury and worcester the places from which they set out are not above twenty miles distant yet had the two armies marched ten days in this mutual ignorance so much had military skill during a long peace decayed in england the royal army lay near banbury that of the parliament at kinton in the county of warwick prince rupert sent intelligence of the enemy's approach though the day was far advanced the king resolved upon the attack essex drew up his men to receive him sir faithful fortescue who had levied a troop for the irish wars had been obliged to serve in the parliamentary army and was now posted on the left wing commanded by ramsay a scotchman no sooner did the king's army approach than fortescue ordering his troops to discharge their pistols in the ground put himself under the command of prince rupert partly from this incident partly from the furious shock made upon them by the prince that whole wing of cavalry immediately fled and were pursued for two miles the right wing of the parliament's army had no better success chased from their ground by wilmot and sir arthur aston they also took to flight the king's body of reserve commanded by sir john biron judging like raw soldiers that all was over and impatient to have some share in the action heedlessly followed the chase which their left wing had precipitately led them sir william balfour who commanded essex's reserve perceived the advantage he wheeled about upon the king's infantry now quite unfurnished of horse and he made great havoc among them lindesey the general was mortally wounded and taken prisoner his son endeavouring his rescue fell likewise into the enemy's hands sir edmund verney who carried the king's standard was killed and the standard taken but it was afterwards recovered in this situation prince rupert on his return found affairs everything bore the appearance of a defeat instead of a victory with which he had hastily flattered himself some advised the king to leave the field but that prince rejected such pusillanimous counsel the two armies faced each other for some time and neither of them retained courage sufficient for a new attack all night they lay under arms and the next morning found themselves in sight of each other general as well as soldier on both sides seemed averse to renew the battle essex first drew off and retired to warwick the king returned to his former quarters five thousand men are said to have been found dead on the field of battle and the loss of the two armies as far as we can judge by the opposite accounts was nearly equal such was the event of this first battle fought at kinton or edge hill some of essex's horse who had been driven off the field in the beginning of the action flying to a great distance carried news of a total defeat and struck a mighty terror into the city and parliament after a few days 
a more just account arrived and then the parliament pretended to a complete victory the king also on his part was not wanting to display his advantages though except the taking of banbury a few days after he had few marks of victory to boast of he continued his march and took possession of oxford the only town in his dominions which was altogether at his devotion after the royal army was recruited and refreshed as the weather still continued favourable it was again put in motion a party of horse approached to reading of which martin was appointed governor by the parliament both governor and garrison were seized with a panic and fled with precipitation to london the king hoping that everything would yield before him advanced with his whole army to reading the parliament who instead of their fond expectations that charles would never be able to collect an army had now the prospect of a civil war bloody and of uncertain event were further alarmed at the near approach of the royal army while their own forces lay at a distance they voted an address for a treaty the king's nearer approach to colebrook quickened their advances for peace northumberland and pembroke with three commoners presented the address of both houses in which they besought his majesty to appoint some convenient place where he might reside till committees could attend him with proposals the king named windsor and desired that their garrison might be removed and his own troops admitted into that castle meanwhile essex advancing by hasty marches had arrived at london but neither the presence of his army nor the precarious hopes of a treaty retarded the king's approaches charles attacked at brentford two regiments quartered there and after a sharp action beat them from that village and took about five hundred prisoners the parliament had sent orders to forbear all hostilities and had expected the same from the king though no stipulations to that purpose had been mentioned by their commissioners loud complaints were raised against this attack as if it had been the most apparent perfidy and breach of treaty inflamed with resentment as well as anxious for its own safety the city marched its trained bands in excellent order and joined the army under essex the parliamentary army now amounted to above twenty-four thousand men and was much superior to that of the king after both armies had faced each other for some time charles drew off and retired to reading thence to oxford while the principal armies on both sides were kept in inaction by the winter season the king and parliament were employed in real preparations for war and in seeming advances towards peace by means of contributions or assessments levied by the horse charles maintained his cavalry by loans and voluntary presents sent him from all parts of the kingdom he supported his infantry but the supplies were still very unequal to the necessities under which he laboured the parliament had much greater resources for money and had by consequence every military preparation in much greater order and abundance besides an imposition levied in london amounting to the five and twentieth part of every one's substance 
they established on that city a weekly assessment of ten thousand pounds and another of twenty three thousand five hundred and eighteen on the rest of the kingdom and as their authority was at present established in most counties they levied these taxes with regularity though they amounted to sums much greater than the nation had formerly paid to the public the king and parliament sent reciprocally their demands and a treaty commenced but without any cessation of hostilities as had at first been proposed the earl of northumberland and four members of the lower house came to oxford as commissioners in this treaty the king perpetually insisted on the re-establishment of the crown in its legal powers and on the restoration of his constitutional prerogative the parliament still required new concessions and a further abridgment of regal authority as a more effectual remedy to their fears and jealousies finding the king supported by more forces and a greater party than they had ever looked for they seemingly abated somewhat of those extravagant conditions which they had formerly claimed but their demands were still too high for an equal treaty besides other articles to which a complete victory alone would entitle them they required the king in express terms utterly to abolish episcopacy a demand which before they had only insinuated and they required that all other ecclesiastical controversies should be determined by their assembly of divines that is in the manner the most repugnant to the inclinations of the king and all his partisans they insisted that he should submit to the punishment of his most faithful adherents and they desired him to acquiesce in their settlement of the militia and to confer on their adherents the entire power of the sword in answer to the king's proposal that his magazines towns forts and ships should be restored to him the parliament required that they should be put into such hands as they could confide in the nineteen propositions which they had formerly sent to the king showed their inclination to abolish monarchy they only asked at present the power of doing it and having now in the eye of the law been guilty of treason by levying war against their sovereign it is evident that their fears and jealousies must on that account have multiplied extremely and have rendered their personal safety which they interwove with the safety of the nation still more incompatible with the authority of the monarch though the gentleness and lenity of the king's temper might have insured them against schemes of future vengeance they preferred as is no doubt natural an independent security accompanied too with sovereign power to the station of subjects and that not entirely guarded from all apprehensions of danger the conferences went no further than the first demand on each side the parliament finding that there was no likelihood of coming to any agreement suddenly recalled their commissioners a military enterprise which they had concerted early in the spring was immediately undertaken reading the garrison of the kings which lay nearest to london was esteemed a place of considerable strength in that age when the art of attacking towns was not well understood in europe and was totally unknown in england the earl of essex sat down before this place with an army of eighteen thousand men 
and carried on the siege by regular approaches sir arthur aston the governor being wounded colonel fielding succeeded to the command in a little time the town was found to be no longer in a condition of defence and though the king approached with an intention of obliging essex to raise the siege the disposition of the parliamentary army was so strong as rendered the design impracticable fielding therefore was contented to yield the town on the condition that he should bring off all the garrison with the honours of war and deliver up deserters this last article was thought so ignominious and so prejudicial to the king's interests that the governor was tried by a council of war and condemned to lose his life for consenting to it his sentence was afterwards remitted by the king essex's army had been fully supplied with all necessaries from london even many superfluities and luxuries were sent them by the care of the zealous citizens yet the hardships which they suffered from the siege during so early a season had weakened them to such a degree that they were no longer fit for any new enterprise and the two armies for some time encamped in the neighbourhood of each other without attempting on either side any action of moment besides the military operations between the principal armies which lay in the centre of england each county each town each family almost was divided within itself and the most violent convulsions shook the whole kingdom throughout the winter continual efforts had everywhere been made by each party to surmount its antagonist and the english roused from the lethargy of peace with eager though unskilful hands employed against their fellow-citizens their long-neglected weapons the furious zeal for liberty and presbyterian discipline which had hitherto run uncontrolled throughout the nation now at last excited an equal ardour from monarchy and episcopacy when the intention of abolishing these ancient modes of government was openly avowed by the parliament conventions for neutrality though in several counties they had been entered into and confirmed by the most solemn oaths yet being voted illegal by the two houses were immediately broken and the fire of discord was spread into every quarter the altercation of discourse the controversies of the pen but above all the declamations of the pulpit indisposed the minds of men towards each other and propagated the blind rage of party fierce however and inflamed as were the dispositions of the english by a war both civil and religious that great destroyer of humanity all the events of this period are less distinguished by atrocious deeds either of treachery or cruelty than were ever any intestine discords which had so long a continuance a circumstance which will be found to reflect great praise on the national character of that people now so unhappily roused to arms in the north lord fairfax commanded for the parliament the earl of newcastle for the king the latter nobleman began those associations which were afterwards so much practised in other parts of the kingdom he united in a league for the king the counties of northumberland cumberland westmoreland and the bishopric and engaged some time after other counties in the same association finding that fairfax 
assisted by hotham and the garrison of hull was making progress in the southern parts of yorkshire he advanced with a body of four thousand men and took possession of york at tadcaster he attacked the forces of the parliament and dislodged them but his victory was not decisive in other rencounters he obtained some inconsiderable advantages but the chief benefit which resulted from his enterprises was the establishing of the king's authority in all the northern provinces in another part of the kingdom lord broke was killed by a shot while he was taking possession of lichfield for the parliament after a sharp combat near stafford the earl of northampton and sir john gell the former who commanded the king's forces was killed while he fought with great valour and his forces discouraged by his death though they had obtained the advantage in the action retreated into the town of stafford sir william waller began to distinguish himself among the generals of the parliament active and indefatigable in his operations rapid and enterprising he was fitted by his genius to the nature of the war which being managed by raw troops conducted by unexperienced commanders afforded success to every bold and sudden undertaking after taking winchester and chichester he advanced towards gloucester which was in a manner blockaded by lord herbert who had levied considerable forces in wales for the royal party while he attacked the welsh on one side a sally from gloucester made impression on the other herbert was defeated five hundred of his men killed on the spot a thousand taken prisoners and he himself escaped with some difficulty to oxford hereford esteemed a strong town defended by a considerable garrison was surrendered to waller from the cowardice of colonel price the governor tewkesbury underwent the same fate wooster refused him admittance and waller without placing any garrisons in his new conquests retired to gloucester and he thence joined the army under the earl of essex but the most memorable actions of valor during this winter season were performed in the west when sir ralph hopton with his small troop retired into cornwall before the earl of bedford that nobleman despising so inconsiderable a force abandoned the pursuit and committed the care of suppressing the royal party to the sheriffs of the county but the affections of cornwall were much inclined to the king's service while sir richard duller and sir alexander carew lay at launston and employed themselves in executing the parliament's ordinance for the militia a meeting of the county was assembled at truro and after hopton produced his commission from the earl of hereford the king's general it was agreed to execute the laws and to expel these invaders of the county the train bands were accordingly levied launston taken and all cornwall reduced to peace and to obedience under the king end of section twenty nine chapter fifty six part two